the traditional or textbook rules of corporate finance don't really apply to the Canadian banks and their legendary commitment to their dividends. Welcome to the ninth episode of our deep dive series on Canadian bank quarterly earnings. Today, we're covering the fourth quarter 2022 bank earnings announcements, and we will return each quarter on this channel to update you on the latest financial results. My name is Daniel Stanley. I'm an ETF specialist at BMO Exchange Traded Funds, and I'm joined today by my friends and colleagues, Chris Heeks, Portfolio Manager for all of BMO's equity and multi-asset ETFs, and Sorab Movahedi, Managing Director, Financials Research at BMO Capital Markets. Today, we're going to cover the recent bank earnings announcements and what they mean for investors and the Canadian economy, as well as looking at different ETF strategies that give you exposure to the Canadian banks. So without further ado, Chris and Sorab, thank you for taking the time to join me today. And Surab, I want to start with you. Let's get right to the numbers, because last quarter you pointed out that two banks missed their earnings expectations. Two banks had near misses because of their changing stance on credit reserves and two banks beat expectations. So tell us, how did they do in Q4 and what does this tell us about the state of the economy? Okay, Dan, thanks. Good to be back. Um, so look, um, we had two misses. And uh, let me tell you, investors were in no mood for misses. The misses were penalized. The poster child for this was CIBC, which uh, on announcement day was down more or less 8%. You know, if you're thinking about, you know, what's the telltale sign, I would say more telling about the outlook for the operating environment, sorry, was what we did to our 2023 earnings estimates for the banks. And we generally tweak them lower, in some cases, upwards of 5%. So let's hope uh, that the view that it will be a short and shallow economic slowdown in 23 holds. And we do have uh, the greener pastures that we're all hoping for in uh, 2024. Thanks, Sarab. And I want to touch on some good news. And Chris, I want to turn it over to you because when we last spoke, you noted that there was an excellent story to be made uh, when it comes to talking about the Canadian bank dividends. And one of the things that was very obvious was five of six banks announced dividend increases. Chris, do you want to talk to us a little bit about how ZEB reacted to that news, if at all? And can you give us a performance update of ZEB? which is our Canadian Equal Weight Bank ETF, relative to the broader indexes in the U.S. banks. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Good to be back here. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the short answer is, you know, investors don't really react too much to the dividend increases in the short term, just for the simple reason we're so used to it and somewhat spoiled by it. But like you said, five of six banks increased their dividend. Uh, the only one who didn't was uh, Scotiabank. And they've had a challenging year and they've got a CEO change uh, that's kind of taking place right now. So we'll see how they do next year with that new CEO. But uh, again, five of six increased. Even BMO, which uh, currently has a, you know an acquisition uh, for the Bank of the West, uh, still raised their dividends. You know, one of the things in overall equity strategy in Canada that you know we talk about, as you know, Dan, is, is the benefit of dividends. 
And it's pretty stark in Canadian equities in that we see the historical performance of dividend growers and dividend payers is quite strong overall, and also a little bit less risk than the broad market. And then you see, you know, on the other hand, uh, companies that don't pay a dividend or companies that cut their dividends, you know, don't tend to perform as well and also tend to have higher risk profiles. So the banks are very solidly in that former category in that they, uh, you know, they, they raise their dividends once again. And, you know, the, the kind of the, you know, the empirical data of, of equity return suggests, you know, that's a really positive thing over the long term. That being said, in the short term, banks, they're doing okay versus the broad indexes, you know, versus U.S. banks are actually doing a little bit better. And I think one of the things is, you know, you really have some macro overhangs in the market. Um, you know, there's a concern about, you know, economic slowdown. There's a concern about, you know, potential recession, you know, driven by central banks, you know, you know, really raising rates. You know, that has played out on the U.S. bank side uh, recently. They're down about 10 percent in the month of December. You're seeing inverted yield curves being a pressure there. You know, macros a pressure, you know, and Canadian banks, on the other hand, you know, have been more resilient. That's something that, you know, they've tended to have a reputation for being more resilient in in times of economic challenges. And part of that is, as we talked about before, you know, strong capitalization and, uh, you know, relatively, you know, prudent risk control versus kind of their global competitors. So Canadian banks are holding in pretty good. And, you know, I think, you know, the dividend uh, increases are, you know, continuing to continue to be a, a positive sign. So, you know, again, you know, as, as we as we turn into 2023 here, there's lots of challenges on the horizon, but, uh, you know, the banks, you know, still fundamentally showing to be pretty strong, pretty resilient. And I think they'll prove to be resilient versus their global competitors once again. And the dividend growth is a, a great signal from them. Great. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Sir, I want to come back to you and I want to stick to this discussion about the dividends because those dividend increases were announced as Chris alluded to and talked about, despite macro headwinds that are out there. And we also saw that OSFI has just announced a funding increase to the domestic stability buffer, sort of an, an acknowledgement of the increased macro risks that are out there. Sorab, can you provide us a little bit of background on that OSFI change, uh, charge and change? And do these seemingly contradictory developments surprise you? Yeah, and I'm going to start by just uh, reminding us that the traditional or textbook rules of corporate finance don't really apply to the Canadian banks and their legendary commitment uh, to their dividends, right? So they will raise equity before uh, they cut dividends. And I think we've all talked about the near century history of them not cutting dividends, even if they've been forced usually by regulatory kind of measures to stop increasing them as recently as the uh, pandemic slowdown. We expect that commitment to remain, notwithstanding the recent minimum regulatory capital increase that you just alluded to by the Canadian regulator. A couple of weeks ago, what the regulator said is that uh, in arriving at what constitutes a well-capitalized, from a regulatory perspective, bank, uh, they, or the Canadian banks, are increasing the upper bound of a counter-cyclical buffer, let's call it, uh, or what's specifically referred to as the domestic stability buffer, 
in Canada. This has a range, had a range of, it's an accordion feature. It can be zero. It could go up to two and a half percent. During the uh, recent COVID slowdown, the regulator pre-COVID slowdown had taken it up to two and a half percent, which was the max. During the COVID slowdown, they reduced it to around one percent. When they lifted the restrictions on dividend increases and buybacks coming out of the COVID slowdown, they reintroduced the countercyclical buffer at the upper end of the 2.5% range. Quite honestly, what was a little bit surprising a couple of weeks ago was the regulator in Canada said that uh, they're doing two things. One, they're increasing the upper end of that countercyclical range from 2.5% to 4%. And at the same time, bumping the countercyclical or the domestic stability buffer, the active range, if you will, for the banks to 3% from 2.5%. Now, I suppose the silver lining in this message is that uh, it is a countercyclical buffer, and the regulator uh, believes that we are arguably not quite in the thick of it just yet, um, that things are going to get worse and uh, there is capacity to increase the capital requirements for the banks, usually probably in anticipation of degradation in credit quality, which manifests itself both in terms of higher credit reserve requirements in anticipation of uh, future loan losses, but also just a degradation in credit quality, which would result in basically higher risk factors applied largely to their loan books and uh, against which they would have to now hold higher uh, capital requirements. Perhaps a bit too technical, but it does two things. Number one, the higher capital requirements may kind of slow down loan growth because uh, each dollar of lending now requires more capital and maybe Uh, in order to get the returns on that capital, you either are a little bit more judicious as a competitor in putting out that money in a loan or make sure you get uh, paid for it, both of which should have the effect of slowing down the loan growth and helpful, maybe helpful to slowing down the economy. But if you just kind of zoom out for a second, this is a little bit technical. At the end of the day, we are expecting a challenging economic environment, but a manageable one. I think when that happens, regulatory rules aside, because I think dividends are a tax on earnings, not on capital. You know, regulatory capital rules aside, what's going to happen is you're going to have the banks build up reserves, as as uh, Chris kind of res- uh, um, alluded to in one of his uh, remarks. There, you know, the Canadian banks do have good conservative approach to risk and uh, credit risk management in particular. So we would expect there's going to be some reserve building here. That will probably mean that the dividend payout ratios, all else equal, will drift towards the higher end of the usual 40 to 50% target range for the banks in 2023. Uh, But again, if it's the short and shallow type of economic slowdown that uh, most economists are contemplating and would be the kind of the basis for our 2023 outlook, we should be back towards the midpoint of that target range as far as dividend payout ratios are concerned in 2024. And then just one final comment on um, 
Scotiabank in particular, because I think, uh, as you noted, five of the six banks did bump their dividends in the quarter. Absolutely true. Scotia obviously has had a CEO change and and the like, but uh, just a reminder that they're on an annual review cycle. Usually review this on the second quarter uh, of the year once they have had uh, half the year essentially under our belt and have uh, under their belt, sorry, and have a bit of a better outlook on the balance of the year. So we would expect they will also increase their dividend. When they do, it will be a little bit more of a I'll call it kind of sizable one relative to the ones that are doing it semi-annually, but uh, they would not be up for review until Q2. Excellent. Thanks very much, Sarab, for that uh, summary. And, you know, we do love to get technical on this uh, call sometimes. I I would say I think that that at a high level, your point about there is capacity to increase capital requirements of the banks. I think I think that's critical, especially when you combine it with the discussion that we've been having about uh, their increasing uh, dividends, Scotia notwithstanding. But you've just pointed out that uh, that they do these reviews sort of on a uh, on an annual basis. Chris, I want to come back to you, and I want to talk a little bit about what drives the performance of bank stocks. Um, because a lot of your focus as an ETF PM and as head of disciplined equity here at BMO Global Asset Management is on factors. Can you just tell the audience, describe to them what a factor is and how they should be used when, uh, or, you know, how you should be thinking about factors when it comes to the Canadian banks? Yeah, it's a great question, Dan. And uh, you know, don't you know we could we could spend a ton of time on factors, but you know we don't we don't have all the time in the world, so we'll, we'll go go through it quickly. But uh, you know what? A, you know, factors are their their characteristics about you know equities. So the first two factors that were kind of discovered uh, were value and size, uh, discovered by Fama French, and they won a Nobel Prize for that. And, you know, essentially factors are, you know, characteristics about equities that, you know, can also drive a return premium. So what Pam and French saw was that companies that had better value characteristics uh, tended to outperform over time. And they found the same thing with regards to size uh, with, you know, in that smaller cap companies tend to outperform over time. Uh, Since then, there's been some other factors discovered. So momentum, uh, quality, low volatility, perhaps most recently. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot of insights, you know, in terms of equity investing that you can look at what are the characteristics of a portfolio, you know, what factors does a portfolio have exposure to, and that can help understand, you know, some of that performance you're going to have in the future and, 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 you know, what to expect, you know, and you can also guard against, you know, factor exposure you don't want in some instance. So that's the, that's the quick kind of background, you know, so the question is, you know, what factors do the Canadian banks have exposure to? Um, you know, and the big one, the biggest one that drives uh, their, their profile is actually size um, in that they have positive exposure to size, meaning they are large cap. Now, let me just stop here for a quick sec. This is this is actually interesting. You know, I just said a second ago that smaller cap stocks are associated with higher return. That's what Pamela French discovered in the U.S., Canada is actually different, and you do find this. Different markets behave differently. In Canada, the size factor is rewarded for larger cap companies. So what that means is larger cap companies in Canada tend to do better over time than smaller cap companies. 
I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is the Canadian banks themselves, they're large companies, they have a history of outperforming the index. And so, you know, that helps move the needle in favor of large caps. The other thing you have in Canada is you have more speculative small cap stocks, right? So um, when you have those kind of speculative high risk stocks, you know, although attractive at various points, you know, they don't tend to be a good uh, investment over the long term. So in Canada, you actually have larger caps outperforming small caps. Um, This is actually the largest factor exposure of the Canadian banks is their, their, their large cap stocks. Couple other things they have exposure to, uh, dividend yield, uh, so more dividend yield as we've talked about, uh, value. So they do have better value than the average uh, TSX component. And again, you know, I think it's pretty, uh, you know, like we just talked about dividend yield off the top, those are those are positive drivers to stocks over time, both dividend yield and value. And then, you know, lastly is the quality side. So earnings variability and profitability, the banks have positive exposure to those factors, meaning better than average. uh, And that means less earnings variability and and better profitability. So, you know, those are kind of two hallmarks of quality, you know, where you have profitability, but not just profitability, it's that consistency of profitability. You know, those are kind of two of the big things that make a quality uh, factor tick. And so again, the banks, um, banks do, do quite well there. You know, the reason you don't see banks in quality indexes, however, though, is they do have larger balance sheets, larger leverage, and, and in some quality methodologies, that's, that goes against it. So you put that to the side, but again, on profitability and earnings variability, where they have very consistent earnings, they have it there. So, you know, overall, those are kind of the three big factors I'd, I'd point out, Dan, is, is that larger cap size that works well in Canada, you know, attractive dividend yields and value and, and quality. Those are kind of the the top factors for Canadian banks when you look at it from that factor point of view. You know, like I said, the one kind of thing that they've got a little bit more of than average is, is uh, leverage, you know, and that they have more debt. And that's just the nature of, you know, I think the businesses that, that they're in. But, you know, over, over overall, you know, you're looking at much more positives than negatives from a factor point of view. So hopefully that, that quick, quick factor overview uh, made sense there. Yeah, no, that, that's great, Chris. Thank you. Because we can definitely get quite technical when you're talking about factors, but I, I love the way you kept that high level and uh, certainly uh, really interesting points about the Canadian banks uh, and, and them being larger cap versus small cap. Um, so, Rab, I want let's continue to talk, of course, about the Canadian banks. And, and we have talked in the past about the risk of inorganic growth via acquisition. Uh, with that in mind, did RBC's acquisition of HSBC's Canadian business, did it surprise you? And if so, why? Yeah, you know, um, we've talked about it, but I would say in-market acquisitions, which would be basically of the variety Royal Bank did when they announced the acquisition of HSBC's Canadian business, you know, they usually have a much higher likelihood of success because so much of the investment case is based on expense synergies. So in this regard, Royal's acquisition, I guess, makes a, a lot of sense. You know, I think the price paid, which in fairness, maybe many won't remember <laughs> a couple of years from now, unless it's a botched execution, was a bit surprising because we viewed it as more of a financial as opposed to a strategic transaction for Royal Bank. 
And what do I mean by that? You know, Royal Bank is already the number one bank in Canada on a variety of metrics. And for number one bank in Canada to make an acquisition to remain the number one bank is interesting, uh, but not as exciting as maybe if a number three or four bank had made the acquisition to close the gap to the number one or two bank in Canada. So a bit of a financial transaction as opposed to a strategic one, it definitely gives Royal Bank a bit of an engine for growth, but not until 2024. And not until, you know, not specific to their Canadian banking operations, it will give them a little bit of an expense and operating leverage story, obviously, because so much of this will depend on the expense synergies. Circa 55% of the acquired assets um, expense base. So that's quite a bit, right? So they think they can cut HSBC Canada's expense base by more than half by putting it on Royal Bank's chassis and really not lose too much of the revenues. And that is really the benefit of in-market transactions. So we'll give Royal Bank a bit of a pass on this one, but it is really a financial as opposed to a a strategic uh, capital deployment move. That's great. Thanks, Sorab. Guys, we've been talking about some big issues. We can't not have this conversation, have this podcast without talking briefly about real estate. So, Chris, can you talk a little bit about the impact, if any, of the changing dynamics in the real estate market on the banks? And is there any value in comparing ZEB, which is our equal weight Canadian bank ETF, to ZRE, which is our equal weight REITs index uh, ETF um, for information and insight. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think there's some things to be observed with that ZRE, the REITs ETF you mentioned. Um, you know, I, I'd have to defer to Sorab for the real look under the hood. You know, my, my casual observation is obviously we know the real estate market's getting weaker um, under pressure. Uh, there's not as much transactions and, and mortgage demand is lower. So that you know, less business can only, you know, in my mind, be a little bit of a negative. But again, offset that banks, you know, one of the things we talk about is they have so many different businesses under the hood that can help contribute when anyone when any one business line is is maybe not performing as well. Um, so you know, a little bit weaker. But you know, I know we have talked on the podcast that the exposure, you know, in terms of that uh, actual credit exposure is is pretty low. But anyways, I'll defer to Saurabh on on kind of the under the hood effects. You know, when I look at ZRE, you know, what I noticed there is, you know, that REIT CTF really had a weak Q2 and Q3 in 2022. And I think the phenomenon you saw there was interest rate risk uh, really caught up to the REITs. So as as those interest rate got higher and higher in 2022, you know, REITs held in for a while, but eventually they buckled and really had kind of outsized losses to the downside, you know, as they were recalibrated to the higher interest rate regime. Now, in Q4, the REITs kind of hit a level where they, um, you know, they kind of based and started, you know, showing a little bit of positive momentum. And, you know, I think what's interesting is, you know, we're seeing CPI uh, in both Canada and the U.S., start to come down 
Um, you know, although the central banks are still talking, you know, a tough game in terms of, you know, a little higher rates and they're, you know, still going to be sticky into 2023, um, you know, we're starting to see forecasts on inflation come back towards the mean kind of over the next six to nine months. Uh, that's going to be beneficial for that interest rate path. And, you know, that's going to be beneficial for the REITs. And I think, you know, it's one of those situations, what's good for the goose is, is going to be good for the gander. You know, you're going to see yield curves be less inverted as we work through this likely tail end of the rising rate environment. I think that's going to be beneficial as we that gets worked through. You know, that's potentially, I, I would say, you know, a stimulus as we move through the year um, for both the banks and the REITs. So that's, you know, my perspective on the REITs is, you know, it's really interest rate pressure, but it's starting to alleviate, you know, and that could bode well for REITs, but not just REITs, just for equities in general, including the banks. That's great. Thanks, Chris. And Chris, thank you, because that's a great segue into my final question, which Saurabh, I'm going to come back to you. And I, I love ending our discussions um, with a summary of the four to five bank metrics and we've talked about this, that armchair economists should look to when trying to get a sense of how close we are to a recession. I guess you could please feel free to drop in your thoughts on, on real estate as you're, you're talking about this. But can we get a quick update from you on the following? One, commercial loan growth. Two, dividend growth, which we already talked about that a little bit. Uh, three, credit reserve building. Four, capital ratios. And then five, which we added, I believe, last call, which Chris just mentioned, the slope of the three-month to 10-year yield curve. So what are those things telling us, uh, telling us armchair economists these days? So um, I'd say maybe no particular order. I would start off by saying the slope of the yield curve we have found to be a reliable indicator, leading indicator. And so... While the slope of the curve has been signaling essentially an increase in loan losses, and we did see some amount of reserve building on, uh, on performing loans at CIBC, for example, this past quarter, it's interesting because as we discussed a little bit earlier, the regulatory countercyclical capital buffer was also actually increased by OSFI uh, post-quarter. And... You know, you talked about commercial loan growth, and we've talked about how commercial loan growth tends to be pro-cyclical. Uh, it certainly was, again, resilient in the fourth quarter results. And, and interestingly, you know, I think we're anticipating a slowdown there, but we haven't quite seen it yet. So the more cautious or mixed outlook kind of near term that we have is probably the right one <laughs> insofar as we are seeing on these four or five yardsticks that you you mentioned, you know, some degradation in some, not so much in the other ones. Probably, we'll start getting that de degradation, if you will, in that uh, long growth metric in the commercial first, and then probably also quite candidly in mortgages. So let's talk a little bit about the Canadian housing topic, which we haven't really talked about uh, more recently. I think there's no doubt that uh, nobody's denying that uh, uh, that service ratios are obviously increasing with higher rates. Certainly there's a vintage of mortgages. I'll refer to them as the COVID vintage, 
these would be the 2019-2020 type mortgages that basically benefited from the lowest mortgage rates and probably were made when the house prices were kind of for this cycle at their peaks. Those would be up for renewal, whether they're variable or fixed, but probably won't be a problem until 2024-2025. So we're going to keep an eye on those. That is, uh, that is going to be a potential area of softness as far as credit quality is concerned when it comes to the renewal timeframe for them. But away from that, we see real estate, generally speaking, given the important role it has played in kind of growing the overall Canadian economy, you know, the slowdown there we see more as a basically a macro headwind. Uh, with respect to the economic activity. Generally speaking, obviously banks, as we've talked about in prior calls, are levered plays on the economy. And so, you know, maybe here's the the blinding flash of the obvious. Everyone is expecting this economic slowdown. So the question is not so much, are we going to have the economic slowdown? It's going to be how severe is it going to be and how quickly can, can we come out of it? And so I think the optimist in us anyway believes that uh, it will be the short and shallow uh, that's been contemplated, that we will have the rebound uh, maybe in the second half of the year and certainly as we look into 2024. And so that should alleviate some of the pressures that we're talking about right now, whether it's on loan growth, whether it's on the yield curve or the slope of the yield curve. Uh, but, you know, the banks are doing as you would have expected them to, right? The, they're starting to reserve build. And quite candidly, even those that didn't do the reserve building, let's say, as aggressively as CIBC did in the past quarter, are sporting allowances that are above pre-COVID levels, right? So sometimes materially so. And uh, capital levels, I think, are quite healthy. So the, the good news there is that... Uh, the balance sheets are strong. I guess the bad news is that uh, we just have to grin and bear a bit of a more difficult operating environment, but a manageable one in our view. Um, and so once the market sentiment and market focus is squarely on 2024, uh, we think uh, we're going to basically get a re-rating uh, in bank stocks and uh, be back on the outperformance kind of train uh, you know they look they, they're likely going to underperform the tsx unless we have some miraculous rally <laughs> in the coming uh, in the remaining days of the of the year but we're we're optimistic about the longer term even even if we are kind of realistic uh, shorter term chris sorab thank you very much look I, i've jotted down a couple of key points and i i think at the end of the day what I take away from this is, yes, I think everyone is expecting a short, shallow recession. The big question is how severe it's going to be. Uh, as a result, uh, we have to take a cautious outlook on the banks. And Saurabh, I love your point from the get-go. You know, when you're in an environment like this, the, the, the investor environment, um, they tend not to be in a good mood, especially as it relates to banks that uh, that don't beat their earnings despite all that we've talked about this at, in every podcast is that you know dividend growers uh, dividend payers uh, like the canadian banks 
tend to be lower risk, better performers uh, over the long run. And I think that's a great message is, is that you are getting a solid dividend as you get paid to wait for that 2024 uh, more positive outlook that Sarab, you just mentioned. As a reminder to the audience, you can get exposure to Canadian banks via ZEB, which is our equal weight Canadian bank ETF, ZCN, which is the BMO S&P TSX capped composite ETF, ZWB, which is the BMO covered call Canadian bank ETF, as well as ZDB, our BMO Canadian dividend ETF. All four of those ETFs trade actively on the TSX. If you have any questions, please visit our ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca for research, news, and insights. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please join us in mid-March for the next update on Canadian banks. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.